Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. President-elect von der Leyen interviewed the two candidates for commissioners from Hungary and from France, and she has informed now the council. The president-elect has also sent a letter to her Romanian counterparts recalling the urgency for them to propose a candidate for commissioner. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, where we're about to enter limbo land with the new European Commission delayed and the old one hanging around as a caretaker. But the Brussels machinery has been trying to keep things moving, as you heard there from Commission Chief Spokeswoman Mina Andriva. Ursula von der Leyen has accepted new Commission nominees from France and Hungary and urged Romania to come up with a new name too. The Romanian Prime Minister duly obliged, but the President says she overstepped the mark and von der Leyen seems to agree. So it could be a while yet before we have a fully-fledged Commission. And that's without even thinking about whether Britain is going to have a Commissioner too. So let's leave that behind for a few minutes and talk EU-China relations, populism and the UK election. First with Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. And Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. So let's start with uh, China. I thought it would be a good thing to talk about this week, partly, Reem, because you're about to head off to China with Emmanuel Macron. And you've just come from a briefing, I think, uh, earlier today with the Elysee. What's the main message? What are they hoping to get out of this trip? First of all, Macron is going there because he committed to going to China once a year. And so he, it's very important for them to, to keep that promise. Of course, they also say that given how uh, important the role that China is playing today in the world, uh, you know, one has to go there. It's part of being able to build a relationship. You have to have FaceTime. Uh, and since uh, the uh, Chinese president, Xi Jinping, uh, was in, uh, in France, um, he is now sort of returning the favor, so to speak. And of course, he's going at the time of the Shanghai import Expo, as they call it, so it's kind of like a a, a trade fair of of, a, of sorts, and actually France is the uh, guest of honor. Uh, obviously, trade is uh, a big, big part of uh, this trip, but they also stress two other things, which is culture, and then also climate and biodiversity. Uh, and of course, they underlined uh, from the get go how they are associating to this trip Germany. And so they're taking with them a German uh, cabinet 
member, the Minister of Education and Research, uh, and also taking with them a few uh, representatives of German corporations. And, you know, this is a continuation of what Macron did in April when Xi Jinping was here. He uh, invited uh, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, but also the Commission President um, Juncker uh, to come and actually be present. And so these are kind of the big themes that they stress today. Okay, Matt, jump in. Yeah, I, I just think this is, you know, clearly a continuation of China's sort of divide and, and conquer strategy with the West. And he's been, Xi's been very successful with it recently. I mean, j- just as, uh, you know, the, the U.S. was trying to raise the pressure on China in the trade dispute, you had Merkel go to China with a, a huge entourage of, of German CEOs, you know, at the same time that People in in the U.S., close allies of Europe, supposedly, are talking about Huawei and the dangers that it poses to European security. And I think this is really the challenge that the West has. It is obviously a very lucrative place to do business, but at what cost? And we're, we're seeing it now kind of play out in the streets of Hong Kong, in, in, in my view. Rim is um, did Macron? Do we expect him to raise Hong Kong, for example? Because that is obviously one of the sensitive topics, along with along with Huawei. Did he? Do you get the sense from the Elysee that they want to go anywhere near any of those things on this trip? Listen, we should not be expecting France to be making any kind of big declaration on its own uh, publicly on Hong Kong. You know, with China, they consider that they have what they call sort of a strategic uh, partnership. And that provides the, as they call it, the framework to discuss these things in a frank way, as they put it. But obviously between leaders and that uh, I was struck today uh, in response to one of these questions, you know, the Elysee official who was talking to us said uh, that the uh, sort of policy of the megaphone does not work with China. Well, the Uh, policy of not using the megaphone doesn't work either. And that's really the problem because they've been going over there now for, you know, the past 30 plus years. uh, And they enter this kind of ritualistic, you know, uh, sort of, uh, mode where they bring up China, you know, it used to be Tiananmen, they would they would mention, and then they would mention, you know, Tibet, or the Uyghurs. And, you know, basically, nothing changes, because everybody wants to keep selling their cars there, they want to keep doing business with them. And, you know, it would be more honest just to say, well, we don't care about human rights, we're going to stop pretending to care about it. And we're just going to do business with the Chinese. You know, we we, we push them on that. And, uh, you know, it's something that they, they take on board, they're very aware that there is going to be that tension, you know, while he's there, people are going to talk about, you know, is he basically putting human rights uh, in, in a sort of second rate position, and sort of giving uh, primacy to, to trade. Now, but I just want to go back to something that you mentioned, uh, Matt. You know, they take it to heart that from the beginning, Macron has been saying, I mean, in April he said this, uh, he's been talking about it over and over again, that they do not want to give in to China's divide and conquer uh, approach. And they were not very happy with Italy when it sort of did their own bilateral uh, sort of meetings with China on the silk, the new silk roads, right? And this is why they keep underlying and highlighting that they are taking with them German representatives. Yeah, I mean, Matt, is there, a, I mean, never mind divide and rule, you know, within the West, what about within Germany, there seem to be two different voices, uh, approaches on China, you know, coming out just this week in Germany. 
Well, you've got all kinds of voices in Germany at the moment. It's difficult to really know who is running the policy and, and you know, where, where the decisions are being made. Obviously, when it comes to China, German business, the big blue chip companies that export a lot there, companies like Siemens or the car companies in particular, VW, are very keen to keep things on an even keel with China. And uh, you've had this little controversy here uh, in, in recent days over Huawei, the uh, telecommunications uh, supplier uh, that has uh, been building 5G networks all over the world. And they want to sell their equipment uh, to Europe, including to Germany. And they already are in, in, in Europe in a, in, a, in a big way. Uh, and the, the U.S. has very serious concerns here, and um, there, there have been discussions between the Germans and uh, the Americans about this for, for many months now. And the U.S. has basically said outright that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, for them to continue to cooperate with the Germans to the same degree that it is now on intelligence if uh, they accept Huawei. And Merkel uh, sort of signaled last week that she would still be willing to uh, let Huawei in. And then you had uh, some MPs, some German MPs, as, as we reported last week, saying, well, not so fast, including for Merkel's own party, that we, this needs more discussion. And then uh, just this week, you had the chief of uh, intelligence in Germany, of foreign intelligence, sound sort of similar concerns to these MPs saying, you know, that that Germany should be very careful about letting in Huawei. So uh, there's just really there's a cacophony on on these issues. And, uh, you know, it's not it's not just in Germany. though. OK, so we can talk more China next week. Uh, let's kind of get back closer to home. Just struck by a couple of election results over the weekend uh, in Umbria, where there was a big win for the Lega party who remember were the uh, the talk of the town uh, certainly here in Brussels and really across Europe until recently and then suddenly miscalculated and, and disappeared from government but uh, the Umbria election seemed to show they were alive and kicking and um, Matt we also in uh, Thuringen in East Germany had a state election in which the uh, far right alternative for Germany did well as well as Die Linke who actually came first the, the far left party so it made me wonder, did the European mainstream forget too quickly about populism? Is populism uh, still a kind of potent force in European politics or, or have we already passed peak? Well, I certainly don't think that we've passed peak. I know that there were some uh, articles by some other publications at the time saying that uh, the worst was over, basically, and, and uh, signaling you know, that things uh, were much better than anyone had thought. But I, I, I think that uh, the Umbrian election in particular just shows how um, difficult it is to, to get rid of populism once it infects the system. And you're, you're seeing something similar in, in Germany. I mean, this was, Turingen is a uh, eastern state. It's always been a bit of a political backwater. Sorry if there are people from Turingen uh, listening, but uh, <laughs> it, it has a fairly small population. But this was one of the first places, if not the first places, that the uh, that the Nazi party uh, did well in was was uh, elected uh, in the regional elections uh, 80, 80 some years ago. So these uh, tendencies that people have, um, you know, are, are uh, somehow in, in, ingrained in many cases. But in this case, it does show in the German example that here you have the two the two um, ruling parties, the, the Merkel CDU and the Social Democrats 
basically, you know, at the bottom of, of the polling here, uh, w- which has to be a very worrying sign for people in Berlin running running the country, because th- there have been, you know, really bad election results all year long or over the past couple of years, really, for these uh, mainstream parties. But uh, for for the first and second place to go to the far left and the, and the far right is uh, pretty dramatic. Okay, so apologies to all our uh, Turing and uh, listeners. I, I know we're well, they massive. have very good bratwurst there. They that's do well. Well, well that makes everything fine. Yeah, yeah, but you're not patronizing them at all. There, that's good. No, no, just the bratwurst <laughs> and the Nazis. That's it. <laughs> right. Uh, thank you. Well, you know, podcast at politico.eu. If you're uh, among our many Turing and listeners, and uh, uh, we did ask last week for for any uh, Junker fans to write in and. Um, Let's say we haven't been inundated. Um, Reem, you know, in some ways, the interesting thing is that, in a sense, you know, um, Marine Le Pen, uh, even her father, you could argue, were the kind of forerunners of, you know, the European populists who, who went on to, to score big in, uh, you know, major European countries. We haven't heard so much from Marine Le Pen recently. How's the, you know, how's the Rassemblement National doing? And how big a concern is it for Emmanuel Macron? Maybe you haven't heard too much of her, but today there was actually uh, a poll that showed that she and Macron are still neck and neck for the 2022 presidential election already. And they're far, far, far ahead of any of their other possible competitors. She, you know, she remains the only true opposition, a sort of leader, incarnation of the opposition to Macron. And in fact, today... Uh, we heard that Macron gave a very long interview to a magazine called Valeurs Actuelles. It's a magazine that is close to the far right, but isn't really far right. Um, it's a very conservative, uh, sort of nationalistic uh, a magazine. And in it, they talk basically just about immigration and obviously uh, the constant French neuroses with the uh, Islamic veil. And you can see that already in the commentary um, that I've seen already in the French media, they're accusing him of basically being, in the, you know, of, of having the election in the back of his mind and sort of trying to already co-opt her or try as much as possible to go and reach out to these, uh, you know, voters. Now, the question is, can he really attract these voters? Or is he going to actually slip more to the right and uh, espouse more of their uh, sort of rhetoric and narrative, which is what we saw, by the way, with uh, sort of conservative president Nicolas Sarkozy do. He thought he was going to be able to co-opt the sort of far right. And in the end, he took on more of their narrative. And he's at the end of the day, the far right, the Rassemblement National sort of still won and now his party, the Républicain, is sort of nowhere to be seen. I think that's a really interesting example, and you've seen it time and again in Europe. And r- right now, the real problem is is that they, they remain strong or will remain strong, even if they lose an election here and there, because the issues that they raise, in particular uh, migration, are top of mind on many voters' list of, of political uh, gripes. And, uh, you know, that's that's certainly true uh, in, in, in Germany when it comes to the identity politics, to uh, the refugee policy and so forth. And now that we're starting to see the economy in uh, Germany and, and some of the neighboring countries start to cool fairly dramatically, you have to wonder if this isn't going to be a, another moment where we see a kind of resurgence in, in, in the far right as, as, as people uh, start getting really angry about the direction of their countries. 
that's another one um, that's going to run and run, I think, for a bit. Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so let's switch to the other uh, big political news of the week in Europe, which was, of course, that Britain finally agreed to a general election. And a few minutes ago, I caught up with our chief UK correspondent, Charlie Cooper, and I started by asking him what he thought the main messages would be from the main parties in this election campaign. Well, from the Tories, you can expect a pretty straightforward, very Brexit-centric message. Uh, you've probably heard the uh, the slogan ad nauseum already, it's get Brexit done. Uh, the party's actually in quite a good position to be making that case because, of course, Boris Johnson defied a lot of people's expectations and got that Brexit deal with the EU. So Johnson's case is quite simply, change the parliamentary arithmetic, give me a majority and this deal will pass and Brexit will be done. And for a British public that's pretty exhausted of the Brexit debate after more than three years now, that might be appealing. Now, Labour probably have an interest in making this less about Brexit, more about everything else. On Brexit, they're, of course, offering a renegotiation and a second referendum. Whether the British public have a stomach for that, we will see, but they might attract some Remainer votes. And speaking of those Remainer voters, the other main sort of UK-wide party is that the Lib Dems will be offering a pure Remain message. The SNP are, of course, uh, still banging the drum for Scottish independence, and they stand to do pretty well north of the border. And then, of course, there's what I think it could be the wild card in this election, which is Nigel Farage's Brexit party. Now, their key role in all of this, I think, will be to be a potential lead weight on the on the Tory vote. They largely argue for a no-deal Brexit. Farage has condemned Johnson's Brexit deal as keeping the UK too close to the EU. They want a clean break. So it's a complex picture, and I think every pollster you talk to will say that it's possibly the most unpredictable election in, in recent times. Yeah, and what um, lessons do you think the parties have learned from, from last time? It doesn't seem that long ago we had the, the last general election. Theresa May started with a big lead. Uh, Labour made up a, le- a lot of ground but fell short. Do you get the impression you know, from talking to, to MPs, to people in the parties, that they're going to do things differently this time around? I get the impression that the Tories are being a bit more cautious uh, in their pronouncements. I mean, there really were some pretty wild expectations thrown around uh, at the beginning of the 2017 campaign, which were not fulfilled. And I think Johnson told MPs uh, that it's going to be a tough old campaign, quite deliberately, I think, sort of managing expectations to to avoid that, uh, that trap that Theresa May fell into. Labour... I do get the impression that they are kind of hoping for a rerun of the 2017 campaign because the, the, the pattern is very, very similar. They're, they're quite, well, they're very far behind in the polls. And that was the case even more so in 2017 and, and, and Labour defied expectations, managed to switch the narrative away from Brexit onto um, uh, domestic issues and Jeremy Corbyn sort of found his, found his voice as a campaigner. And I do get the impression that they are sort of hoping lightning strikes twice. Now, what should Europe uh, take away from all of this? What are the most likely, as far as we can tell, Brexit outcomes? You know, how could, following the election, what are the different kind of Brexit paths we could be on? Well, first of all, I think Brussels will probably be watching this and thinking, thank God, it's out of our hands for a little while. In terms of the two main outcomes we might expect, I guess the basic uh, scenarios are a Tory majority, which quite simply would see the Boris Johnson deal ratified and passed, and then we'd enter the future relationship negotiations on the basis of the withdrawal agreement that was struck earlier this month. 
And then the other outcome is not a Tory majority, in which case one could see some more most likely, given Labour's current polling position, some kind of confidence and supply slash coalition situation where Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, some combination thereof and other smaller parties can perhaps cobble together enough of a uh, majority to, 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 to govern. And all those parties are broadly united on the idea of a second referendum. Mm. If there were to be a Tory majority, how quickly could Brexit um, get done, to use the, the slogan? Is there any chance of it being uh, completed by the end of this year or would we be looking at, at January 31st in any case? Well, The Sun had a, a front page on, on Wednesday which did say sort of you know, New Year's Day Brexit and had a big you know, firework graphic on the front. I think it's really unlikely. Um, the elections on December 12th, uh, you rapidly get into uh, the Christmas period after that. There's very few House of Commons sitting days to uh, to push the legislation through, and even if you had managed to do that before Christmas, the European Parliament's got to ratify this before the before it can be called a done deal. So I, I find it, I think it's pretty unlikely that Brexit will be able to happen on December thirty first. But of course, the the extension that the EU has offered is is all the way up to January thirty first if necessary. I think if we do get that Tory majority, that looks like being the the most likely Brexit date. Okay, and if we don't, then we're probably looking at another extension, right? If we don't get the Tory majority, yeah, we'll need... I mean, there'll have to be an extension. And I guess if you listen to what EU leaders have said over the past several weeks and months, they are willing to give extensions if it looks like there's going to be a good reason. And that complete change of the political firmament here would would count as a pretty damn good reason, I reckon. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, you know, they they don't really require a lot of persuasion, even though you hear plenty of of noises to the contrary. I mean, they don't want a no deal. And um, if they can just keep keep this process prolonging, they don't love it, but uh, they can live with it. Does anybody love it Anyway, Charlie... Does anybody love it? We can put that out to our listeners. Email podcast at, at politico.eu if you still love Brexit. <laughs> uh, and I'm not talking about the outcome, I'm just talking about the process, the process exactly, which seems exactly. to be going on forever. Okay, thanks, Charlie. We'll no doubt be checking in with you uh, throughout the campaign. So thanks for now. Cheers. Thanks. And let's stick with UK politics now for our main interview. Uh, earlier this week, Annabel Dixon sat down with Geoffrey Donaldson. He's the chief whip of the Democratic Unionist Party, the main pro-UK party in Northern Ireland. And the DUP has been propping up the Conservative government in the UK since Prime Minister Theresa May lost the party's majority in 2017. But the DUP has been bitterly critical of the Brexit deal sealed between Boris Johnson's government and the EU. For them, that deal effectively creates a customs border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Annabel starts out her conversation by asking Donaldson if he feels betrayed by Boris Johnson's latest deal. Uh, yes, I think we do feel badly let down by the Prime Minister and I, many of my constituents have used the word betrayal. Um, it's not just the DUP, but... Many unionists in Northern Ireland feel that the Prime Minister has let them down badly and and that uh, he has sacrificed uh, Northern Ireland's integral position within the United Kingdom in return for getting a deal that uh, uh, he can uh, push in uh, essentially English constituencies. And uh, the Prime Minister, I think, is acting in a way that undermines the integrity of the United Kingdom. You were very involved in discussions with Number 10 and the Prime Minister in the run-up to this deal being agreed. 
At what point did you realise that the Prime Minister was going to go for this deal? Well, uh, uh, really only uh, on the uh, evening before he travelled to Brussels to meet the EU leaders. Um, And that wasn't because the Prime Minister told us. It was our own deduction from the Prime Minister's behaviour at that time. Uh, It was evident to us that he he really wasn't taking on board uh, the concerns that we had raised. And how much did the Prime Minister and his chief negotiator, David Frost, the Northern Ireland Secretary, Julian Smith, how much did they involve you in in discussions? Well, in fairness to Julian Smith, I don't think he himself was that uh, involved. um, And so we weren't, on matters related to Brexit, involved in any detailed discussion with Julian. There had been discussions with officials, and indeed the Prime Minister had had contact with our our party leader, Arlene Foster, in the days preceding his decision to go for this deal. But I would say that even in the the few days before um, he made the agreement with the EU, those talks had tailed off quite a bit. Uh, And what about Dublin? I mean, did did you have any contact with Dublin in in the lead-up to this? I I know that you were keen to have those sort of bilateral talks. Well, uh, the uh, Prime Minister certainly had bilateral discussions with uh, the Irish Prime Minister. I would say there was very limited contact between the Irish government and ourselves. We had made known concerns uh, that we had, particularly in relation to the principle of consent and how that might operate in uh, uh, any new arrangements between the EU and the UK. Um, But it was fairly limited contact. You mentioned consent. Um, This deal, unlike other deals gives the Northern Ireland Assembly a vote on the new arrangements. To many people, that seems like a fair bargain. You know, Northern Ireland gets to decide its future. That's more than you got before. Isn't this a democratic deal? Well, it doesn't reflect what uh, is in the Good Friday Agreement, and uh, both the Irish government and uh, our own Prime Minister have said repeatedly that they want to avoid having a hard border on the island of Ireland, and they want to protect the principles and arrangements agreed under the Good Friday Agreement. Well, one of those key principles is the principle of consent. And on key decisions related to Northern Ireland and its future, the operation of the principle of consent in the Assembly is by what we call parallel consent. That is to say that where you're making important decisions that affect the whole community in Northern Ireland, then you take votes on a cross-community basis. There has to be cross-community consent. So on a decision of this nature, no one can seriously suggest that this decision is not an important decision for the future of Northern Ireland. Whether we remain in the arrangements that would be established under this deal with the EU is a vital decision for the future of Northern Ireland. And therefore, under the Good Friday Agreement, decisions of that nature should be taken by parallel consent. What the Prime Minister has agreed to is that a simple majority in the Assembly will be sufficient to retain the arrangements, whereas we argue very strongly you should respect the principle of parallel consent. That is to say there should be cross-community support for these arrangements. So how would you see that working in practice? In practice, what it means is that you would have a vote in the Assembly on whether we should retain the arrangements that were established under um, the EU withdrawal agreement and that the vote in the Assembly would require uh, that um, there is a cross-community support for retaining 
those measures. That means that unionists and nationalists both must vote for it. It would not be enough for, say, nationalists and other parties to vote for it and unionists not to vote for it. And at the moment, there is no unionist party in Northern Ireland who supports these arrangements. So you do not have cross-community consent for what the Prime Minister proposes. How concerned are you about growing support for so-called neithers in Northern Ireland? You know, the parties that don't designate as either unionist or nationalist, which has been such a kind of key part of Northern Irish politics for for a long time. For example, the, the Alliance Party in particular has made a number of gains at recent elections and its leader, Naomi Long, was elected to the European Parliament. Yeah, but Alliance still only gets um, uh, just over 10% of the vote in Northern Ireland. So, you know, um, uh, and of course I want to see the normalisation of politics in Northern Ireland over time. But the Good Friday Agreement is premised on the basis that progress in Northern Ireland is made on a cross-community uh, basis with cross-community support. That you, Precisely for the reason that you do not want a situation where unionists are imposing their view on nationalists or nationalists are imposing their view on unionists. Um, in order to avoid conflict in Northern Ireland, cross-community consensus was agreed at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement. And yet... These proposals, under the Prime Minister's deal with the EU, do not respect cross-community consensus, do not make provision for cross-community support. And in our opinion, that does undermine the integrity of the Good Friday Agreement. It undermines the principle of consent. And without that, and I think this is really important, Annabelle, that your listeners understand this, if we change the principle of consent, if this precedent is now established, that cross-community consensus is not the way forward, I think that has huge consequences for our ability to restore the political institutions at Stormont, to restore the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive. So, in my opinion, and in the opinion of most unionists, this deal undermines the Good Friday Agreement and undermines the potential to restore the political institutions under that agreement, and therefore for Dublin in particular and the UK to support such a deal when they are co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement, I think is a reckless decision. There's been a certain sort of schadenfreude in glorifying in the DUP's comeuppance having been betrayed by Boris Johnson. I think one of the, the sort of arguments that, that people have been making is, you know, you, you had this sort of very powerful position in, in the UK government that put you in a, at an advantage and sort of was, was, you know, it was a problem for the UK government, which is, is meant to be neutral. What should people who don't live in Northern Ireland understand about the DUP objections to this deal? Well, look, of course I understand that uh, people who voted to leave the European Union want the deal done. I voted to leave the European Union. My party campaigned for the leave uh, vote. But this deal does not uh, mean that the United Kingdom as a whole leaves the European Union as one nation. And therefore I think you breach one of the fundamental objectives of um, the whole leave campaign, which was that the United Kingdom would leave the European Union as a whole, together, as one nation. That has been breached by this deal. It separates Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. But let me say something else, and this I think applies to all of us in the United Kingdom. 
do we want politics um, where honour matters, where people's word counts for something? Prime Minister gave us his word. He said no Conservative Prime Minister, no Conservative government could support a customs border in the Irish Sea. His words, and he went back on his word. He broke his word. So we all need to understand, uh, when we talk in the House of Commons about the honourable member, where is the honour in breaking your word? Where is the honour... Uh, We have honoured our commitments under the Confidence and Supply Agreement, even last week to the point where we supported the government in their Queen's speech, in their legislative programme. We've honoured our obligations. We believe the Prime Minister has broken his obligations and I understand why people who are frustrated about Brexit just want the deal done, but we need to ensure it's the right deal for the whole of the United Kingdom and if it's not, that will have consequences for all of us if this goes badly wrong. There doesn't appear to be an appetite in Brussels to renegotiate this deal again. You know, they, they made it very clear this, this is your last chance. What does your party do next? Well, of course, we've heard that before, Annabelle, that um, the, uh, the EU have said uh, they're not reopening the uh, withdrawal agreement. And, and in the end, they did. Uh, I don't know whether they will. But I am saying this. If the EU's objective is to preserve the Good Friday Agreement, is to protect the peace process in Northern Ireland. I think they're making a big mistake with this withdrawal agreement. I think it will undermine the Good Friday Agreement. It will make it more difficult to restore the political institutions. It damages and undermines the principle of consent, which is at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement. And we already have, regrettably, people um, threatening to return to the streets. We do not want people out on the streets in Northern Ireland, um, and and that has to be avoided. And therefore, let's find a sensible arrangement um, that uh, deals with this, enables temporary arrangements to be put in place, but uh, that the principle of consent is respected and that there is not a customs border separating Northern Ireland from our biggest market in Great Britain. I cannot overemphasize the damage that this will do to the Northern Ireland economy. Over 70% of the goods that leave Belfast Port are bound for Great Britain. If we have a customs border between us and our biggest market within our own country, I mean the absurdity of having a border internally within the United Kingdom, I just don't know how the Prime Minister doesn't see that that is absurd, that it is wrong to have a customs border within your own country. That will be very damaging to businesses. We know already that the cost of making exit declarations for businesses could be up to £56 every time there is a transaction. That will threaten the viability of many businesses in Northern Ireland. Now, if we end up with businesses crashing, unemployment rising, how does that help the peace process in Northern Ireland? Because prosperity and peace go hand in hand. And when you undermine the economy, you undermine the peace process. You alluded there to the potential civil disobedience and, you know, loyalists have have made those threats. What would your message be to those people who are making those threats? Very clear um, that, that taking to the streets is not the answer, that violence most certainly is not the answer, uh, that we have to stick with the political process. We have shown by our votes here in the House of Commons, uh, that we we can act on behalf of Northern Ireland and we've stopped this deal in its tracks. The reason the Prime Minister is now having a general election is because we've stopped his deal. The 10 DUP votes were crucial in halting that deal on the floor of the House of Commons. So our message to people who might consider street protest is politics 
Uh, we've shown that politics can work. We've shown that through political action we can stop this deal. Now we have a general election. What I want to see is people out voting in Northern Ireland and uh, voting for the DUP to send a strong message to Westminster that this deal in its current form is unacceptable and it needs to change. What do you think your chances of holding the balance of power again in the next parliament might be? I think there is every chance that we will end up with either a government with a small majority or indeed even a hung parliament. Uh, And therefore I think the DUP again will be in a pivotal position in the House of Commons and we will seek to use that influence wisely just as we've sought to do so in this uh, last parliament. I believe we have acted responsibly. We've delivered a a lot for everyone in Northern Ireland with extra funding for public services uh, and we will uh, want to get a strong team elected back to the House of Commons so that we can continue to play that pivotal role in influencing uh, on behalf of the people of Northern Ireland. That was Annabel Dixon speaking with the DUP's Geoffrey Donaldson. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Next week, we have an appointment with outgoing Budget Commissioner Gunter Oettinger, looking back on his long career in Brussels and ahead to the EU's big budget battle. In the meantime, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and share it with friends and colleagues. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks as ever to producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.